12th. Good morning. I'm so glad that I get to be with you this morning. I'm going to come down here, post up right here. Okay, I want to start this morning by uh, posing a question to you, okay? Have you ever misrepresented something in your mind? Has something ever existed in your mind one way, but in reality in another way? I think that this is true for us all the time. And so I want to start by taking you through something here. This is a Big Mac conceptually in your brain, right? This is what you envision because this is what they've told you a Big Mac looks like on uh, the commercials, right? But in reality, this is your Big Mac when it comes. It never, it's literally never this. You've never ever receive this Big Mac. You always receive this Big Mac. Similarly, when you go to book a hotel, this is the photo they show you. This is the picture you're imagining as you walk through the door, and then you show up, and this is what you get, right? Like, it's never, you've never been, you've never walked into a hotel room that you've booked and be like, oh, it's better than it was online. Like, that's never happened. It's always, always worse, right? Similarly, and this last one is just like hypothetical, Doc, okay? This is just hypothetical. You've been married for like two weeks, and your wife says, let's go get a dog, and this is what you envision, right? You're going to go get a dog. It's going to be great, and then this is what you get. Like, it's just things in our minds, they don't always, they're not always, they don't reflect reality. Does that make sense? The truth that I want to talk about today is that I think we do this with the enemy as well. We see the enemy in the Bible, the one that we would call the devil or Satan, and we conceive of the enemy as one way in our minds, and I would contend to you this morning that the enemy, according to the biblical text, is something completely different sometimes. And so I think it's really important that we think uh, accurately about what the enemy is, and that's what I want to talk about today. But before we go any further, I've, uh, I've got to show you something. You might... Hollenbeck's cover, Nate's eyes, this is pretty graphic, but we think we found a picture of the Satan himself, the real enemy, the real devil, and so uh, if you have small children, have them look away because this is serious business, but we think we found a picture of the real, this is it, we found him. None of you are laughing because you're K-State fans, but just know that that joke was funny, okay? And it gets worse than that because the enemy has pulled Garen in, Okay? He's, he's one of them now. He's gone to the dark side. I don't know why, but he's over there. Okay, so this morning, could we just be open to the possibility that what we believe about the biblical enemy, the Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call it, could we just be open to the idea that we don't see the whole picture or that there could be a hole in our thinking and that there's something that we could learn? I just want us to come this morning... <coughs> willing to be challenged in our thinking about that, okay? And I know that's not always easy in church, so I'm asking for some leeway on that. Two reasons why I think it's really important what we think about the enemy and that we talk about it. The first is this, that it always benefits us to know about our enemy every single time. This is why coaches watch game film before the big game. This is why generals gather intel before they go to war against an enemy, because it always benefits you to know about your enemy every single time. You're going to benefit when you know about your enemy. And so if we have a real enemy who has our demise on its mind, wouldn't it make sense that we want to know about the enemy too? I think it makes a lot of sense. The second is this, that when we take the crosshairs, when we take our focus off our real enemy, we tend to make enemies of each other. Do you guys see this in your lives? Do you make enemies of mankind way too easily? 
I think I do that, especially at Christmas, right? We're around family, we're around people who push our buttons sometimes, and it's so easy to make enemies of others when in reality, we have a bigger enemy and we are not at war with one another. But it's so easy to demonize other people when we take our focus off of the real enemy. Here's a bonus reason. It's, I don't have a slide for it, but going in to Christmas a week from today, um, the birth of Jesus means so much more to us when we know what it meant to the enemy, when we know what him being born on earth to come and save us from our sins, the enemy knew that happened, and when you understand it through the enemy's eyes and what it meant for, for it, um, the nativity is so much more meaningful, and so hopefully going to add some depth excuse me, to the Christmas story this morning as well. So I want to share with you who the enemy is. I want to share what the tactics of this enemy are and how we can partake in the victory that Christ already has over this enemy. So you may have noticed by now that uh, I'm not really using the names that we use for the biblical enemy. I think sometimes we will call the, the biblical enemy by different names, but we're going to talk about why that is and why I am just calling it the enemy and not really giving it a name. It's because the Bible doesn't ever give the enemy a name. Um, so where do these, these names come from? Where do these things that we call the enemy, where does that come from? Well, a couple places. One might be Lucifer. You might think the enemy is called Lucifer. I grew up in Christian school and was actually taught that God named the enemy Lucifer, that he gave him that name, and that was his name before he was fallen. I, I thought that was true. After doing a little more research on this, I saw that Lucifer is simply a Latin word that was translated from the biblical title given to the enemy in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, uh, the prophet writes about the enemy and calls the enemy the morning star, the sun of the dawn, just describing the brilliance with which it was created. And when Jerome translated this into Latin hundreds of years later, he used the Latin word Lucifer, meaning light giver. And so it is just this Latin word that means light giver. Lucifer is not a name that is given to the enemy in the Bible, which kind of blew my mind when I found that out. Another one we might use is devil, right? There's the devil. There are lots of little devils. This might be what exists in our mind. In reality, the English word devil is a derivative of the Greek word diabolos. And diabolos in New Testament Greek simply means one who is a slanderer or a gossiper or an accuser. And actually, there are lots of places in the New Testament where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to churches, and he is calling them diabolos. He's saying, you are being devils. You are slandering. You are accusing. You are gossiping, and it is tearing God's church apart, so stop doing it. So if you are in church, and you are being someone who brings disunity, who slanders and accuses, you are the devil. You are being the devil, because that is what that means, one who stands as a, as a slanderer or an accuser. This last one, I think, is the one that I think of most, and maybe you think of most. It's this word Satan, right? Oh, Satan. It's his name. He is Satan. He's the enemy, right? Well, actually, Satan comes from a Hebrew word, Satan, which just means adversary or one who stands opposed. That's the Hebrew of this word. It's not a name that is ever given to the enemy. We see this a couple times, um, more than just here, but these are the two I'll show you. First Kings 11. 
there are three Satans or Satans that come up against King Solomon as he is waging war. So three Satans are mentioned in 1 Kings 11. There's not three biblical enemies that we're talking about in that sense. It's just three adversaries of King Solomon. In Numbers 22, if you're familiar with the biblical story of Balaam and his donkey, uh, Balaam is going somewhere. The Lord does not want him to go. He's riding his donkey, and so God sends an angel of the Lord to stand before the donkey and stop it in its tracks. And there in Numbers 22, it says that that angel of the Lord was a Satan, was a Satan, was one who stood opposed to the donkey and stopped his way. So we see that Satan is not a name. It is simply a title. In fact, everywhere that Satan is used in the Bible, in the original manuscripts, it is never just Satan. It is a Satan or the Satan, an adversary or the adversary, because it's not a name. It's simply a title that is given to one who stands in opposition. I think it is really important that we understand um, why we call the enemy what we do. And there's a really great video that I found. It's, I've trimmed it to about 90 seconds to really get the heart of it. And if you know the guys who do the Bible Project, Tim Mackey and John Collins, they explain this really well. This is really brief. If you like this, what we show, and you want to see more of it, they have tons of YouTube content. All you got to Google is... Bible Project, The Enemy, and you can find all these things. It's really good. But watch this video really quick. I think it's going to be helpful. Uh, in biblical narratives, when this spiritual rebel is described, it's described as the Satan. Mm. So it's using the title, the adversary, mm. and attaching the word the in front yeah. of it. So I, to me, that's important because I think giving this, whatever this creature is, um, I think giving it a proper name assigns a bit too much honor and dignity <laughs> to it. Because the whole point is this being is anti-creation. Mm -hmm. He's anti-good. Yeah. And the biblical authors don't ever assign it a name. Mm. They assign this creature images and titles. Mm. So I'm just trying to, to be honest, I'm just trying to imitate the biblical language about this creature. Yeah. And I think um, using the word the, I don't know. So it's a, it's a quiet revolution <laughs> <laughs> to redefine our language about uh, the Satan. And because it's how Jesus himself and the apostles also use the word the. Why is it not in our modern translations? I think, one, it sounds awkward. Yeah, it sounds super awkward. And our translations are trying to make the Bible less awkward Yeah, in terms of trying to make it into normal English. But then second, I think there's a longstanding assumption that it is a name. And so translators don't want to, you know, upset the boat too much and p put obstacles in the way of readers. And yeah. so they they take out, they just don't represent the word the in mm -hmm. English, which I, I think is unfortunate. So we can see their reasoning behind this is that it's simply what they see when they study the Bible. And they want their thoughts about the enemy to match what is in the biblical text. So I hope that that was useful for you or new information for you. It was certainly good for me. Let's talk a little bit about the origin of the enemy. Where did this enemy come from? Well, in Ezekiel 28, it tells us the enemy was created for good and for beauty by God, our creator. So the enemy was not made to be this um, eternal duality with God like maybe some of us think of. He was actually created good and became evil when the enemy, in Isaiah 14, it tells us, decided to rebel against God, decided that the enemy wanted God's power, <coughs> excuse me, 
wanted God's throne and decided to lead a rebellion against God. And then in Ezekiel 28, it tells us again that the enemy was removed from glory, was removed from its place of power, was stripped of all its honor, was cast down into the world. And so this is where the enemy is now. So let's talk about the enemy now. The enemy now is called the ruler of this world many times in Scripture. It's clear that the enemy has some level of influence and power in the world at this time. That's not forever, but it is right now. We know that the enemy accuses, we know that the enemy tempts, and we know that the enemy deceives. This is what it does. A good question might be that maybe we've never thought of is why would the enemy want to do these things? What is the motivation behind the enemy wanting to deceive and tempt and accuse? Um, I think that we can fall into the trap all the time of making things about ourselves, but this is no exception. I think we make this about ourselves and sometimes we think, the enemy wants to get at me, it's got a beef with me, it wants to, it's, there's something about me that it hates. And as I think about that, it doesn't really make sense. There's no reason the enemy would hate me for any reason. When I think more deeply about it, it's really about God. God is the one who casts the enemy out, who has sealed the enemy's fate and will destroy it one day, and the enemy knows that. And so everything the enemy does is an attempt to get back at God, to cause God pain, right? And so if it's going to do that, it can't hurt God. God is God. But what can it do? It can hurt the ones that God loves. It can separate God from his children, the things that he loves the most. And so everything this enemy does is in an attempt to separate you from, from your creator. The enemy will use pain and death and confusion, anxiety, depression, division. The list goes on, all in an attempt to separate God's children from him and from each other, right? To isolate us because he knows that it would grieve the heart of God if that happened. So the enemy is actually not ultimately trying to attack you, but trying to attack God and cause him pain by separating you from him and from others. The Bible talks a few other places about the nature of the enemy. 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then John 10.10, Jesus tells us this. He says, The thief, the enemy, will come only to kill and destroy. I think sometimes, maybe not so much in the church, well, yeah, I think, I think we can be guilty of this too. We kind of soften the image of the enemy in our minds a little bit. Ah, oh, he just, he's, he wants fun and God wants rules. And so going with him sometimes, just breaking a few of God's rules, it's really just a little bit of fun to, to go along with the obedience, right? Or like we can water down who this enemy really is. But in reality, if you look at the biblical text, comes to kill and destroy. Has your demise on its mind, not your flourishing, not your good? And it's so important that we see the enemy for what it is, um, which is evil, which is the worst, which is anti-creation, anti-good, as the Bible project would say it. So the next question is, how does the enemy go about doing these things? We know what it wants to do. We know why it wants to do it. How is it going to go about doing this? Um, well, we know the enemy has tactics, has schemes, right? 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes to a church in Corinth, and he's telling them to forgive one another. In this part of the letter, he's saying, hey, don't let unforgiveness get between you and other believers, because if you do that, Satan might outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. He says, hey, Satan is trying to sow division in between you guys, but we're not unaware of this. We're not unaware that that is one of his schemes, so be aware and forgive one another, right? So we know that Satan has schemes. Uh, when I talked about this with students a few weeks ago, I likened it to weeds. I love pulling weeds. I don't know what your thought is, 
but I love pulling weeds. Weeds kind of fascinate me. Weeds all have different schemes to accomplish the same thing. Lots of different ways of doing it, but ultimately they all want to like multiply exponentially, and they all do it in really unique ways. Obviously dandelions. Um, when you're a kid, it's fun to blow the dandelions, and then when you're an adult and you see a kid do it in your yard, you're like, I will end you. I literally spent $40 on weed killer. Like, what are you doing? So dandelions are really creative. Sandbirds, these are the worst. Like, you might have PTSD just looking at this because if you've ever been walking barefoot through the grass in the summer and you step on sandbirds, it is the actual worst. But what do they do? They want to lodge themselves in your clothes or in animal fur, right? They have a different scheme of doing it. This one I see all the time, but I've never known the name. I had to Google it. Does anybody know what this is called? What is it? That's not what Google said. Um, Google said it's called Creeping Spurge. I don't know, but I see this everywhere, and I love pulling this one up. It's so satisfying because the root is so long on it, and it's really cool. It's a little scheme. Like, it, it wants to spread out as much as possible, take up as much ground cover as possible to kill all competition and just soak up all the water and all the sunlight for itself. So we see that, that weeds, even though they're so simple, they have schemes. And so, of course, our enemy has schemes, has ways that it seeks to accomplish its purpose. What is the number one scheme, the number one tactic of the enemy? It is always going to be the same. <coughs> Excuse me. It's never going to change. It was the same in Genesis 3. It's going to be the same on his last day of existence. He tells lies. He uses lies to move you away from truth and into lies. Okay? The enemy has one move. Understand this. It's so important. The enemy has one move. He doesn't have a big bag of tricks. One move, and it is to tell you lies. It's like playing somebody in basketball who has one move, and you know they're going to go to the same spot every time and shoot it from right there, and it's easy to stop if you know what's coming. The enemy tells lies. It's what it does. Um, and here's the thing about lies. Even if you know it is the enemy's tactic, lies are sneaky, lies are unseen, lies are passive. They're often undetected by us. We don't know when they're happening. These attacks are not aggressive. They are not brash. They are not obvious. And I really wish they were sometimes because it would be so much easier to stop the enemy. The enemy attacks us the way that the United States enemies attack it. No foreign nation is going to line up toe-to-toe with the U.S. And, and, char- and, and try and go to war with us, right? Our military is too well-trained. It's too big. Our spending budget is too much bigger than theirs. Like, there's no way head-to-head anybody is taking down the U.S., okay? Knock on wood. Um... The enemies of the U.S. would rather attack it in a sneaky way, right, with cyber attacks. They would rather use algorithms and, and false information and, and stealing information, right? They, they would use cyber attacks to attack the U.S. all the time because that is sneaky. That is underhanded. That is not obvious. You can't read it because it's really small print, but this is a screenshot of a computer that is tracking um, cyber attacks at, at any given moment because they're always happening across the world. And in really tiny font is the U.S. at number one. We are the most cyber-attacked country in the world always, all the time. And this is how our enemies attack us, is sneakily through cyber attacks, and it is the same with our enemy. The enemy is not going to line up toe-to-toe with God or with anybody who has God's spirit within them because it knows it has no chance. It would much rather be sneaky, be underhanded, use lies, use misinformation to move you in a different way. Jesus says this about the enemy. He's talking to some Pharisees in, in John 8, and he says this, Hey, Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I don't think Jesus can say it any more clearly. The enemy not only uses lies, it is a liar. And it not only speaks, it speaks lies. When it, it says when it lies, it speaks its native language. Dang, that is who the enemy is at its core is a liar. It's not just what it does, it's who it is. We know that truth is reality and lies are unreality, and the enemy seeks to move you out of reality into unreality. Now, why would the enemy want to do this? Because the enemy knows in reality, it loses. The enemy can read. It knows what it says in Revelation 20. It knows its, it knows its fate, that one day it will be cast into the lake of burning sulfur. It will be destroyed right? So it knows the truth, and as long as it operates according to the truth, it has no chance. The only chance the enemy has is to move you out of reality into unreality, that, that it would get you, like him, to exchange the truth of God for a lie, to forget your citizenship in heaven, to forget your adoption as, as a son or a daughter of God. That is the only chance that the enemy has to affect you. So, this is going to be a really easy one if you love easy answers. Um, if lies are the weapon, then what is the defense? It's truth, obviously. It's the opposite, right? It's truth because truth always leads to freedom. Lies always lead to enslavement. Does that make sense? Anytime you're rooted in truth, it's going to result in your freedom. Anytime you buy into a lie or live according to a lie, it is going to result in your enslavement to something. No matter what the situation or what your feelings tell you, this has never changed in human history and it never will. Paul knew the importance of truth, and he made a point to talk about it in Ephesians 6. So if you have your Bible or if you have your phone, um, we're going to go to Ephesians 6. Uh, we're going to go verses 10 through 17. There's a lot of good stuff in here that talks about many things that we'll discuss today, but I want us to focus on Paul's focus on truth right here really quick. I'll give you a second to get there. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Okay, so I'm going to start in verse 10. Ephesians 6, 10 says this. This is NIV. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Oh, did I put it there? Uh, nope, okay. Uh, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the devil, sorry, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth, that's big, buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul says a whole lot there, but there's something really important in verse 14 that he says that I want us to look at. In verse 14, he says, where are we to stand? We're to stand with the belt of truth around our waist. Paul says, if you're going to stand against the enemy, the most important thing is that you stand with the belt of truth around you, that you remain rooted in truth. 
because he knows the main tactic of the enemy is to move you out of truth and into lies. It is so important to Paul, and he says it several times right here. Something else that he says a couple times is, uh, oh, I skipped some slides, stand. He calls us to stand four times. Growing up, I thought, this is weird. Why would he say stand? Is it like a standing versus sitting thing? What's going on? If you look at the original uh, Greek for this, the word is not so much like stand up. The word is more like uh, abide, which Garen talks a lot about, or set up camp, reside somewhere, set up camp and, and be somewhere. And Paul says we need to stand four different times. I think it's so important that we understand this camp imagery because abiding is really about where you're going to live, where you're going to commune. And so if this image is helpful to you, then maybe you can use it too. It's helped me. Paul is saying you have a choice where you get to set up camp. Imagine that this river is dividing two lands. One is rooted in truth. One is rooted in lies. And you get to decide where you're going to set up your tent. Am I going to abide in God's truth? Am I going to make an effort to live on the truth that he has told me? Or am I going to set up camp somewhere else and do my own thing and hope that it turns out right? Paul calls us to abide in truth, to set up our camp on the side of truth. Guys, abiding is so much more about relationship than accomplishment. Abiding is so much more about relationship than accomplishment. So often we think that doing it is the way, that earning it is the way, when really we've got to understand God does not call us to earn anything, but simply to abide in him and his truth. But this is really hard for us. It's really hard for us as humans to just abide and not to earn it. That's why this verse is so hard for us. This is an Awana verse that if you've been in church, you've heard a hundred times, but it's so true and it's so good, even if it's hard for us to understand. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This makes perfect sense in our heads. It's not hard to conceive of what this is saying mentally. It is another thing entirely to let it permeate all the way down into your heart and into your affections. This has to be something that we not only allow into our brains, but into our hearts. Because it is one thing to know that God wants nothing from us as far as earning our salvation. It's another to really internalize it and live it out. That's why this is such an important phrase for us. Don't try, just abide. If you are taking notes or if you're committed to remember one thing, I would say this is what I want you to remember this morning. God is not calling us to try. He is calling us to abide. So don't try, just abide. The lie of the enemy is that you can do enough or be enough or earn enough, but that is not the case. Have you ever heard those voices in your head? Are you sure you're worthy? Have you really tried everything? Do you really need help with that? Are you sure you can't do that on your own? I followed Jesus for a long time, and these voices, they don't go away from me. I think the enemy continues to use them because he knows that as long as we're trying to earn it on our own, we're going to live in frustration. That as long as we are trying to fight physically with willpower by just deciding on our own that we're going to do something, that it's going to end in frustration for us and futility for us, that it's never going to work. It's like if somebody saw their lawn full of weeds. See, here's weeds again. If somebody saw their lawn full of weeds and said, I'm just going to go cut the tops off of those weeds, it would look great for the day, but in two days, 
they'd be back with a vengeance, right? That's what it looks like to fight physically and not spiritually against our enemy. And this is what he wants for you. He wants you to spin your wheels. He wants you to, to get caught up in frustration of fighting him physically because he knows it's a battle that he'll win every time. The enemy would hate it if you were to call in spiritual backup. The enemy would hate it if you were to submit to the Holy Spirit and invite uh, the Holy Spirit into a situation and to take over because it knows that it can't win that battle. If you want a case study on this, man, Mark 5, Jesus is is coming across the Sea of Galilee. He encounters the demoniac, this man who has over 2,000 unclean spirits in him. And as soon as Jesus walks on scene, the spirits within this man know who Jesus is, and they're freaked out. And they know they've got no chance. They immediately begin shrieking, please, is it the day of judgment? Is this the day you cast us in the lake of fire? Because they know what their fate is going to be. And Jesus says, no, just get out of here. And they run from him. The enemy's view of Jesus has not changed in 2,000 years. It is still terrified of him, and any situation that he is present in is one that you will have dominion in because of his name. The enemy knows its fate from the beginning, right? Genesis 3.15, this is God speaking to the enemy right after he deceives Adam and Eve, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. The offspring will crush your head. And you will strike his seal. The enemy knows that he is doomed to be crushed one day. So if we are not going to fight physically, if we're going to fight spiritually, what does that look like? Jesus makes it really easy for us in Mark 1.15. He says, repent and believe, right? For the kingdom of God is here. When Jesus comes to earth and begins his ministry, begins his attack on the enemy and on the, the kingdom of darkness that the enemy has set up here, these are his marching orders to his followers. He doesn't say, hey, try really hard. Hey, no one misses church anymore. Hey, no one, no one uh, spends any more free time doing anything other than memorizing scripture, right? He's, he doesn't say earn it in any way. He simply says, repent and believe, right? Turn from your sin and believe that Jesus is the one that he says he is, who holds the keys, who is the answer that the enemy can't deal with. Can I show you one more Really cool thing as we wrap up here. I know we're almost out of time. Um, but Paul is so smart, and he does something that's really cool here, and I want to show it to you. Because you remember back in 3.15, Genesis 3.15, God says, okay, there's going to be an offspring one day, a Messiah, an anointed one, a Christ, and he is going to crush the enemy's head. He's going to deal the final blow to the enemy that will do him in. Okay, so he says that, and Paul knows this. So what does Paul write? In, in Romans 16.20, he writes to the church, and he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And they're like, whoa, God's going to crush Satan under our feet? Well, well in, in 3.15, it says that the offspring, that, that Jesus has already done that. So what does he mean by this? How could the church have a role in crushing the enemy? Well, Paul uh, writes in Ephesians 6.15, and we don't have it on a slide, but you have it here. In 6.15, what does he say in this long passage here? He is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he says, and with your feet, okay, we got the feet theme going, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So Paul says, okay, church, you're going to be the ones who is going to crush Satan under your feet. And how are you going to do it? You're going to share the gospel of peace, not by earning it, not by being good enough, but by spreading the gospel of peace. Paul says, you're going to crush the enemy by spreading Jesus' story of what he's done in you and that is a story of peace because that means that the God of peace has put you at peace with others. 
Okay? So this is how Paul calls the church to stomp the enemy under its feet by spreading the gospel of peace. And we know that it's a gospel of peace because what Jesus did for us resulted in, A, peace with God. Romans 5.10, it says that we now have, excuse me, a restored friendship with God. That because of what Jesus did on the cross and rising from the, from the grave again, that we have a restored friendship with God. So we're at peace with God. And we know that we're at peace with others. Ephesians 6.12, right? It says that we have no struggle against flesh and blood. That as far as mankind is concerned, if you want to be their enemy, it's up to you. But God says you have no manly enemy. Like you have no physical enemy. It is only one spiritual enemy. So this good news, this gospel of what Jesus has done, puts us at peace with God, puts us at peace with others. And that is how we're going to stomp out the enemy, is by sharing that story with others. Paul says, put the crosshairs on the enemy by sharing your story. Take it off of each other. It's so easy to put the crosshairs on each other. Take it off of each other and put it on the real enemy. Okay, can I wrap this for us? We're about out of time. I think I have just a few minutes. But there's a few really key things I want us to walk away with. One is this, that what we think and how we think about the enemy, it really, really matters. It really, really matters. And maybe a question you could ask yourself is, what have I believed about the enemy that isn't true? What shifts, what mental shifts do I need to make so that I better understand who the enemy is and what its tactics are um, when it comes for me? Another thing I want you to walk away with is that the enemy seeks to move us from reality to unreality. You've got to know that this is the main tactic of the enemy, that it's going to seek to move you off of truth off of reality and into unreality. So maybe a few questions for you could be, where am I camped at? Where have I set up my campsite? Are the most frequent and influential voices in my life telling me truth or are they telling me lies? This is really big. Think about the most frequent and influential voices in your life on a daily basis. Are they telling you truth or are they telling you lies? Last thing I want you to remember here is that it's don't try, it's just abide. It's really simple, but it's really key, and it's actually really hard to do because we're really sinful. <laughs> um, don't try to earn anything. Just abide in God's goodness. Abide in the fact that he already has the victory. So maybe a question is, what dandelions am I trying to cut the tops off of? Where am I still trying to earn it? Where am I still trying to be good enough for the cross instead of going to the cross and then living in response to it? And this is my very last thing, my very last slide, is just that, that we have to live from the cross. That so much of the way we view the enemy, I think sometimes, is trying to be good enough or trying to, you know, do the work that Jesus has already done. And the truth is this, that you don't have to do any kind of work to get to the cross. Sometimes our flesh says, okay, let me kick this really evil sin and then I'll come to Jesus. Let me, um, let me make this one thing right or clean up this part of my life and then I'll be ready to receive what Jesus has for me. You never see that in Scripture. If you're living biblically, that's not how you're living because Jesus never asked people to clean up their act before he pays for their sin. He pays for it, and then he says, okay, now go live a life in response to that, and that is what he's calling for us here, that we not try to earn it, that we just abide in it. I hope that this was informational. I hope that it was good for you, and I hope that as you celebrate Christmas this year, it kind of adds a new depth to what the manger meant because the enemy... Uh, is terrified of the manger. It knows that it's the beginning of the end for it. And so hopefully this is uh, added to your Christmas experience this year as well. So um, that's what I have, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for the day. Thank you that we get to hear your word. I pray that it was clear. And um, thank you for 
the manger. Thank you that Jesus came as a baby and that it was the beginning of the end for the enemy. Thank you that you have supreme power that even though the enemy is able to cause some pain and some division and some confusion right now, that ultimately you hold everything in your hands and that you have already spelled out the end for this enemy and that we don't have to live in fear of the enemy. We don't have to live according to his lies, but that we can root ourselves in truth and have freedom in you. Lord, help us to understand this well and not just for our head's sake. Like, who cares what we know? Help it to affect our lives so we can live differently. So we give this to you. And uh, we're so grateful for who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, 12th. You're dismissed. You're sent. See you later. Merry Christmas.